So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, I'm confident of this very thing, that you who began a good work in Grace Church will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And this I, I pray, Lord, that our love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All of those words came from Philippians 2 at the beginning, then Philippians 1 in the prayer. We're stepping away from our Believe and Live series through the Gospel of John for one sermon from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, that the elders have been burdened to share with this congregation for a while. I was actually scheduled to preach this message last Sunday on, on Easter Sunday, but was by the grace of our other elders and my inability. Uh, I, was, I was unable to, to do so due to some extenuating family challenges. And I sincerely want to thank all who are uh, aware of what's behind that. I thank all who have prayed for us. And in God's kindness, the extra week to meditate, to pray for the Lord to deal with my own heart has enabled me, I think, to see things even more clearly in this text, but also to trim the manuscript from last Saturday afternoon at 64 pages on two verses to just a few less than that for today. Our passage does not say, use all your energy by God's power to see to it that this local church is unified in Christ. It does not say that. And that is the point of the passage. Every commentary I read, every scholarly insight that I consulted, and all my meditation on this text, I, I know that it's not an exaggeration to say that I've listened to the book of Philippians over 50 times since the beginning of March. Every person that I've consulted and all my meditation in this passage conspires together in consistent agreement that this passage is about unity in the local church. And that's what our elders are burdened to call this congregation to pursue. Unity in Christ. Don't wait for it. Don't hope that the person next to you will do it. Pursue it. As I was wrestling with the Lord and praying on Tuesday morning, March the 9th, through this passage, 
and praying it over the members of our congregation one by one, I was for some reason stirred to begin to write a list of all the controversial words, phrases, ideologies, and names that I have personally heard people in our congregation use as threats to the unity of the church at large and Grace Church in particular. In no time flat, my list ballooned to 116 names, words, and phrases, and then I just stopped. They were under three categories. The pandemic, politics, and ethnic unrest. Totaling 116, and I was tempted to read the list to you until I listened to Philippians for about the 30th or 40th time. And Paul knew that there were divisions in that church. I'm going to show that to you in a moment. And instead of naming them, he said, if anyone has a different attitude, the Lord will show this to you. Or when he knew Euodia and Syntyche were fighting again with each other, and that the lady who sat over here and the lady who sat over there hated each other's guts, in chapter 4, verse 2, he said, I urge you to be in harmony in the Lord. Well, who's right, Paul, and what's the problem? He doesn't say. I'm going to say my aim is to not say the things that you know are explicit threats to the unity of this church, but to say explicitly, the Lord will make it known to you. More than those phrases, words, names, ideologies, I can confirm this. God is my witness on behalf of the elders who asked me to share this message with you after I shared a version of it at our pray and plan with them, not for you, for us. It was for our pastors. I'm coming to you with a broken heart because the elders can see, for what it's worth, I said, I don't want to preach this sermon to the church. But they prayed and urged and graciously pushed and plotted and, and, and here we are. I'm coming to you with a broken heart because I can see that the enemy is seeking to fracture this faith family. And if we will be spared from the carnage that Satan wants to accomplish in our midst, it will happen one and only one way. Meeting right now at the feet of Jesus. To that end, I want to try to show from our passage that the greatest threat to the church is never out there. It's always in here. That we would become like so many churches who at one time were faithful in church history, but soon thereafter became the church of the absent God, the churches that have lost their first love, the danger is that we would content to be a people who are well-versed in all the cultural garbage and vitriol and rage and spiritual pride. That we'd be well-versed in all the ideological dangers of our day and completely unaware that the living God has quietly excused himself from our prideful midst. The greatest danger to the church has always been that the Lord would write Ichabod over the doorway of our fellowship. The glory has departed. 
concerning the polarization of believers happening in our day, I mainly feel a brokenness for the saints of Grace Church. I'm not pastoring the people of the internet, but your precious souls. And I do remain hopeful that one sermon attended by the Spirit of the living God could undo hundreds of hours that many, maybe even many of you, have devoted to being discipled by anyone, 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 anyone who provokes your spiritual pride and Christless lovelessness toward the saints of this church. In today's passage, we will see how churches pursue God-pleasing, that's God's word in verse 13, His good pleasure, how churches pursue God-pleasing unity by three avenues. Looking to Christ, verse 5 to 11, working out your salvation, verse 12, and depending entirely on the supply of our God for everything we need to please Him. So first, our Savior, verses 5 through 11. As I mentioned, the sermon was scheduled to be preached on Easter Sunday, and there's, uh, you know, arguably not a more relevant Easter text than Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But if you'll notice, verse 12 begins with the word, so then, or therefore. That's obviously looking back to what precedes it. So in verse 12 says, so then, my beloved, he's hearkening back to what he just said in what has been called the Christ hymn, the Christ song. Philippians 2, 4 through 11 was probably a chorus, a spiritual song that New Testament churches sang. And Paul inserts it here in Philippians 2. So looking at our Savior is what I'm asking you now to do. I'm inviting you to see that the eternal Christ was one who embraced self-humbling, who in verses 5 and following was not only made in the likeness of men and found in appearance as a man, but was humbly obedient his entire lifetime. And he was obedient even to the storge, the cross death. As a result of his God-honoring, unflinching life of impeccable obedience to the Father, all the way to the point of death, the Father was so pleased with his life that he raised him from the dead and the text says highly exalted him. It's literally super exalted or literally it would be God has pushed him as high as possible. And this exalted one has also had bestowed on him the highest, the greatest, the most prestigious name. He is Curios, he is Lord. This is verses 5 to 11. And we find in verses 9 to 11 that as a result of his super exaltation and having bestowed on him the greatest of all possible names, God will see to it without consulting anybody else's opinion that every creature in the heavenlies and all the creatures who have ever touched the dust of this earth and all the ones who perish forever will bow before him either by choice or by force 
acknowledging that he is Lord, and all of that, verse 11, will redound to the glory of the Father. So the question is, in verse 12, how should we respond to such glorious truth of the self-humbling, obedient, cross-death, super-exaltation, name above every name of Jesus? How should we respond to such gloriously good news? One commentary put it this way, reflection on the cross of Christ, verse 5 to 11, reflection on the exaltation of Christ, verse 9 to 11, reflection on the universal worship of Jesus, verses 10 and 11, leads to, now get this, reconciliation in the community of those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Another commentary said, Paul moves quickly and easily from theological contemplation, verse 5 to 11, to practical implication, verse 12 to 18. The word therefore in verse 12 points to the intended result of all that the Christ song proclaims. Now go with me. What is the intended result? Why did God give us this paragraph? What does he want from us? The answer is, I'll keep reading that commentary, Christ's death on the cross and his universal lordship are not abstract theological concept far removed from the nitty-gritty problems of everyday life. But yeah, preacher, why don't you ever preach against fill in the blank? Why don't you ever say fill in the blank? When are you going to talk about fill in the blank? This passage, and to quote this, I think, very wise, faithful Bible interpreter, the cross of Christ and his universal lordship are not abstract theological concepts far removed from the nitty-gritty problems of everyday life. One final quotation. True worship of Jesus, verse 5 to 11, motivates us to build up the community of Christ, verse 12 to 18. And here comes the reason I read you all that. Christ above all is the unifying center of our life together. Friends, now let me, let me say it biblically, brothers and sisters, I do not want to meet you on any other territory except the cross of Christ. Would you come with me to the cross? Would you meet at the cross with me? I totally believe that's what verses 12 to 18 is about. That it reveals that if you proclaim Christ, verse 5 to 11, we will be complete in him. That's a quote from Colossians, but verses 12 to 18. This and this alone, the Lord Jesus, crucified, risen, exalted, reigning, returning, preserving his people to the end is the confidence for our unity together as his people now. So that's our savior. Second, our salvation. This is our principal point. It's the main point of the passage. It's the only command in the text. Work out your salvation. That's in verse 12. That's an imperative. In light of verses 5 to 11, you must do something. If you sing praises to Jesus and it never affects your life, then it's not Jesus you're praising. The something we are to do is, as I mentioned, verse 12, work out your salvation. But before we get to that imperative, to that command, let's make sure that we receive it 
the way Paul intended it and delivered it. How did Paul intend for the Philippians to receive that command? The answer is found at the very beginning of verse 12, knowing that he loves them. Do you see that? Therefore, my beloved, my agapetos, that word beloved at the beginning of verse 12 lets us know not only that Paul loved this church, but that they knew that he loved them. The old adage is true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And even 2,000 years after, the Lord Jesus taught us that love for our neighbor is evidence that we belong to the living God. People still wonder why nobody listens to them when they bludgeon them with truth because they don't realize that they sound like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If you're constantly telling people how stupid and wrong they are, you're probably not the person that they would be most apt to listen to. Paul says, Christ is exalted. I love you. Work out your salvation. Was Paul concerned about this church? Like seriously lose sleep at night, burden for them? Absolutely. 127, he was concerned that they were not of one mind, that they were not striving together for the hope of the gospel. In 115 and 117, they were inviting preachers to the pulpit who had selfish motives and, quote, were full of envy and strife. In 2, 1 and 2, their unity was totally fracturing. In 2.16, he knew if they abandoned Christ that all of his labor among them will have been in vain. In 3.20, he knew that if they succumbed to worldly-mindedness, constantly listening to and talking about what all the pagans are talking about, they will prove that they have, 3.20, no heavenly citizenship. In 4.2, he knew that two ladies were at odds with each other. Let me ask you a question. How would you talk to people for whom you are deeply concerned? How would you talk to them? What would you most want them to know? Paul wants them to know, I love you. Therefore, my beloved. Paul's heart had been so captured by Christ's love for him that he took great delight in obeying Christ's 11th commandment, the new commandment. When the Lord Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Paul modeled that kind of Christ love so beautifully. I mentioned it's the word agape. Now, Paul was concerned about this church. I just underlined that. But I want you to know, I want you to hear that they, they knew more, they knew in, around, under, above all of his concerns that he loved them. Listen to this. I'm asking, how would you talk to people that you're concerned about? Does it sound like this? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Is that how you talk to people who you think have a hard heart? Or how about this, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
or 127 and 224, how he wanted to see them face to face, or in 216, how he told them, are you, are, can you picture this? He told them in 216 how much he was looking forward to standing before the Lord Jesus and glorying before Christ for what God did in their life. And I just want to say to you, Grace Church, your elders are eagerly looking forward to the moment when we stand before the King of Glory and brag on His grace in you. In 2.17, Paul delighted to share his joy with them. In 2.19, he tells them he's sending Timothy because he expected that a good report would come from their faith. In 2.25, he sends Epaphroditus so he would be less concerned about them, not so Epaphroditus could beat them up. Paul believed in 3.15 with hope that if they had any wrong attitude, God would reveal it. And he says in 4.1, therefore my beloved, same word, whom I long to see, you are my joy and my crown. Do you hear this? He's very concerned about them and they knew he loved them. Here's an application. Lace your concerns for other believers with God's love. Let me say that again another way. If you cannot lead, continue, and end with how much you love someone else who professes to belong to the same Jesus you profess to belong to, then I love you enough to tell you you are the last person God wants to use to tell them how wrong they are. Can I say that to you again? If you can't saturate your approach of legitimate concern for another believer with God's agape for them through you, then you're not the person God wants to use. Your heart is the problem. All the New Testament churches, do you find this astonishing? Wanted Paul to come back. They look forward to his return visits. Why? Because he spoke the truth to them in love, not the truth as love. Do you see the difference? That would heal so many of the potential divisions among believers in our day and in our church. Speaking the truth as love weaponizes the truth. Speaking the truth in love shows that you've been captured by the same grace that you're trying to help others come into. Weaponizing God's truth is not a godly virtue. And the problem is not with the truth. All the New Testament churches, as I mentioned, wanted Paul to come back. Why would they want him to come back? Think about the Corinthians. Is there a more jacked up church in the Bible? And they wanted Paul to come back and they knew that Paul saw problems, legitimate problems in their church. Why would they want him to come back? 1 Corinthians 10, 14, that's why. Therefore, my agape flee from idolatry. That's the same thing as saying, therefore, people who I love with God's love, get out of sin. They knew Paul loved them. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you want to be holy? Find some people who love you with God's love and listen to what they say. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. The church in Corinth had been told by selfishly motivated preachers that Paul was using them that he didn't love them, that Paul was actually selfish and was playing a game with them for his own selfish gain. 
Listen to what Paul said to them. Second Corinthians 12, 19, at this time, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. He knew that that church was on a dangerous trajectory from defecting from Jesus. And the Philippian church had some serious, serious issues going on. Fracturing their unity, becoming a reverse witness in the community, telling basically all the lost people that this gospel message has no power. It's not true. When the church is fractured, that's the message that we're sending to the world. Paul had some serious concerns for the Philippian church. He knew they were on a dangerous trajectory to defecting from Jesus. That's what he says. And Paul knew all of that and loved them, and they knew that Paul loved them. Now, here's an application. Do you tell with your words, not your actions, not only your actions, do you tell the other believers of this congregation, I love you, I love you with God's love, I'm praying with joy for you every time that I think of you, I long for you with the affection of Christ. If you can't say that, I love you enough to say, you got some spiritual pride and you got to come to the cross. That's the only place it can be dealt with. So first, Paul wanted this message to be received a certain way. You are my beloved. Now here's what he tells them to do. It's our second point. It's the main part of it. Work out your salvation. That's the command, that's the imperative. It's the only imperative in verses 12 and 13. It's a present right now imperative, command. Do it and do it now. So I don't know what your plans were for today, but this is God's number one agenda item for you. Three things about this command, work out your salvation. First, it's plural. Both the verb work out and the pronoun your are plural. Paul is not talking to individual Christians. He's talking to the whole church. Second, it's a call to action. Do something. Paul uses the same word for work out in many other passages, and we can discern from all of those consistently, Paul used it in a way that he wanted the expression in the Philippian church to be practical and very easily observable. Anybody should be able to tell if they are or are not obeying this command. Let me give you some other examples of how Paul uses this word. In his own life, he said in Romans 7 verse 8, sin dot 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 produced coveting in me. Fruit, root. You can see covetousness. I could see it in my life. That came from sin. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, momentary light affliction, same word, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. When you get to heaven, you're going to see a stack of glory with your name on it that's going to have a tether going all the way down to all the suffering you experienced on earth, but it's going to be disproportionate. But you will feel the weight of glory that God produced through your suffering in this life. It's a fruit and a root. You can see in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says the signs of a true apostle were performed, same word, work out, performed among you with all perseverance. The signs of an apostle. 
You can see it in our life, signs and wonders and miracles. That's the kind of evidence that Paul is calling for in this command to work out your salvation. So first, it's plural. And second, everybody should be able to see it in your life. It's the kind of evidence that has five expressions in this passage. Now, I'm asking you to do 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see if this is what your salvation looks like. Are you dying to selfishness? Philippians 2, verse 3. Are you embracing the attitude of self-humbling in Christ? Philippians 2, verse 4 and 5. Are you repenting actively right now of all grumbling and complaining? Verse 14. Are you holding fast to the word of life? Are you a Bible-saturated person? Verse 16. Are you sharing your Christ-centered joy with other believers in this congregation? Verse 18. That's what it looks like to work out your salvation. You die to selfishness, embrace the attitude of Christ, repent from grumbling and disputing, you hold fast to God's word, and you share, you share on purpose, intentionally, your joy in Jesus with other believers. That's what working out your salvation looks like. So here's another application. Would you say that such five-fold obedience to God typifies your life? It's the rule, not the exception. Is that what your life looks like? If not, oh, please, God, help right now. If not, would you repent right now? and ask the Spirit of the living God to produce in you these five expressions of obedience to Christ in your life. So not only is it plural, not only is it active, third, there are two modifiers to the command. In my absence, with fear and trembling. The command is work out your salvation. I just showed you from the passage what that's supposed to look like. But there's two modifiers, in my absence, with fear and trembling. In my absence, Paul said at the beginning of verse 12, just as you always obeyed when I was with you, now much more so in my absence, work out your salvation. Illustration comes to mind of uh, any parents among us who have multiple children. When the youngest or the second is at least, uh, is around maybe two years old, you know you can't leave them alone in the same room for long. The reason you get babysitters when you go out and try to get a little fresh air for mom and dad from kid world, you, you do so for a bunch of reasons. You, you know, you want them to be fed and maybe the pajamas put on, perhaps a, a pre-bedtime uh, bathing before the pajamas, get them, get them put to bed. There's a bunch of good reasons to get a babysitter, but one of the main ones is so they don't kill each other right? Cain and Abel. And you know if you leave kids alone for more than just a little bit of time, they tend to fight. But if mom or dad are in the room, they tend to do it just a little less. Paul said, when I was with you, you always obeyed. But when I walk away, there seems to be something different. Grace Church is 14 years old. And sometimes we act like it. 
Paul was really concerned for the church at Philippi. Because when he was present, they were on their best behavior. But when he left, they quarreled and fought. Verse 14. Do you see what's underneath that? What's going on in Paul's heart when he writes this? Work out your salvation when I'm absent. Why why that modifier? You can see what's in his heart. And I want to know if you care about this. Not for me. For us, for you, Paul's concern was that their allegiance was more to a man than to their Messiah. And that's a problem. That's a problem. So that leads to a second modifier. I don't have to be there because there's somebody way more significant than me who never leaves. The second modifier is with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is our main focus in the text because it's the main focus of the text. As I mentioned, it is an imperative, it is a command. Why did Paul say with fear and trembling instead of something a little more soft and encouraging? Why why didn't he say work out your salvation with love and laughter? Or, Or work out your salvation with sweetness and tenderness? I don't think either one of those would have been bad. Why did he say with fear and trembling? There's actually a very powerful reason in Paul's mind using this phrase and the Philippian church would have known it. One thing we learn about Philippi from the book of Acts when the church started, here's the cast of characters by the way, a a jailer and his family, a, a rich lady who sold purple and a slave girl. That's the church. Now it grew. We know Euodia and Syntyche are members of the church now from the time Paul writes this letter. So so it grew, but that's the original cast of characters. But we also know from the book of Acts that Philippi was, quote, a leading Greek city. Big influence, Greek city. As a result, they would have been acquainted with the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the churches. It's called the Septuagint. If you take the phrase fear and trembling and you search the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will find something very stunning. The phrase phobos and tromos, fear and trembling, in the Old Testament is always accompanied by the manifest presence of God among his people. One more time, God shows up. And when God shows up, he doesn't need a marketing campaign. Everybody knows it. Right after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, after 400 plus years in slavery to Egypt, they saw God's mighty power ripping the waters apart after the death of the firstborn, the night of the Passover and the blood and the death angel. They saw God among them. When they crossed the Red Sea, they stood on the other shore and Pharaoh and his Egyptian army came in and God smashed them and killed them all, Romans 9, to demonstrate his power. Right then, Moses said, sounds like a good time to sing. So we get what we call the Song of Moses, the very next chapter. And in Exodus 15, 16, listen to this. Terror and dread, exact same phrase, fear and trembling fell upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. 
They saw God in their midst. Isaiah 19, in that day, the Egyptians will tremble and be in dread. Exact same phrase. Fear and tremble because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. What I'm saying is you find the phrase fear and trembling and you will find a common denominator. God shows up. Application. We can see that Paul is using the phrase fear and trembling to mean something like this. Work out your salvation in all your relationships in the church, not just Sunday morning. I'm talking about when you text each other, talk to each other, when you meet up with people who have very similar affinities as you about all the problems in the world. Whenever you relate to God's people in this church, do it with fear and trembling. Here's a paraphrase. Talk to every other brother or sister in your congregation, Philippians, as if the living God is in your midst and everything you ever say or ever do to one another must pass through him first to get to them. Let me paraphrase it again. Y'all, it's plural, must all live and minister to each other as the people that God has saved, as if the God who saved all of y'all is in the midst of every relationship you have. Man, would that change a little bit about the way we talk to and about each other? If we believe that our words had to pass through the presence, the manifest presence of God to get to the ears of our brother or sister. One of the great joys I've had for the last seven years, and I think this was my final year to do it because I far exceeded my ability, is to coach my son's basketball team. This year... I had a special uh, help that came in the form of a new assistant coach who actually knows basketball. And he is also a fireman for the Memphis Fire Department. His name is Tyronza Mosley, and he's at Station 8 down by Booker T. Washington. And Coach Ty, as a fireman, also has a responsibility to train new firemen who come into the program for the city. And he told me a little bit about the training, and then this is what he said to me. He says to all the trainees at the end, after all my training, direct quote, I only want to know one thing before I run into a burning building with you. Are you afraid? Coach Ty said, Fear is a controlling motive. It takes over everything I've ever taught you if you're scared. You might be able to remember the list of things to do in order, but you won't be able to perform them if you're scared. At least perform them to the ability that is needed if I'm going to be beside you, depending on you. You see, fear is a controlling motive. It absolutely dictates everything you do. At your bottom, at your base, you have a fear. Some people's greatest fear is death. 1 Corinthians 15 has something to say to us about that. That ought not be your greatest fear. Jesus even spoke in a way that makes no sense to people whose greatest fear is death. Don't fear people who can just kill your body. What? Fear God who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Everybody has a greatest fear. Some of your fears are the fear of being unliked or not popular or something else. And it controls everything else. And what Paul is saying is, I do not want to remove your fear. I want to replace it. 
When God is not your ultimate fear, healthy, holy, biblical, God-honoring fear, then he does not control your life. Something else does. That's why the number one most repeated command in the entire Bible is two words. Fear God. Here's an application. I mentioned the long list I wrote of the things that I've heard earnest believers say are the greatest threats to the unity of the church in our day. I believe that that has revealed that many of God's people have a whole lot of unhealthy fears. The pandemic, the current ethnic unrest, and the ever-present political turmoil have exposed many, I believe, sincere believers. Paul said, Euodia and Syntyche are fighting with each other. Very same verse he says, and their names are written in the book of life. I think sincere believers are manifesting that they're living in fear. Paul's aim in our text is not to remove your fear, but to reorder it, to put a proper fear before our eyes, a healthy, holy fear of God in Christ. But preacher, if, if you never talk about fill in the blank, then the church is going to be deceived. Can you hear how that is fear-based? Can you hear that? I'm so thankful we're doing the Mark study because I just read this week in God's providence that Jesus said he will cut the end times short so that no elect person can be deceived. It's impossible for an elect person to be deceived. We shouldn't be foolish and just throw ourselves to the wolves. We should devote ourselves to the truth or as Paul prayed in chapter one, we should be filled with the kind of love that leads to an appreciation of knowledge and discernment. We should do that but the elect are not going to be deceived, period. Jesus promised it. So fear and trembling, I believe, represents the presence of God among the church. That's how you're to work out your salvation. When Paul's here and when Paul's away, you still work out your salvation because God is there with fear and trembling. New Testament application is just loaded. I'm gonna give you a few examples of what we could spend the rest of the day looking at. Do you want to know why the Apostle Paul preached Jesus so clearly, so consistently, so unapologetically everywhere he went? I counted up this week because Nathan says he's going to try to memorize Ephesians. How many times is Jesus mentioned explicitly or by pronoun, he or him, in the book of Ephesians? I counted this week, I may have missed some, 114 in six chapters. Why is he so Jesus intoxicated? Why? Why did he say to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? you know what the next sentence says? The next sentence, because I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Exact same phrase. I only preach Jesus to you because I believe God is in the middle of the church and I'm not gonna talk about anybody else because God doesn't think there's anybody else more impressive. 2 Corinthians 7, 15, Paul sent Titus to the Corinthian church because they had problems. And Paul said to the Corinthians, Titus's affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Same phrase, what? When Titus got out of his Uber 
and walked into the church at Corinth, they received him as if God was walking into the church with him? Why? You know some people like this. And it grieves me that we all know far too few. But they knew Titus walked with God and they knew Titus was a faithful representative of God. So when Titus shows up, God shows up. Application. Would your life have that effect on other Christians? Not because you're deified, you're not God, but because other people know that you walk so close with the deity. That's why they received Titus with fear and trembling. Another application, we need to honestly admit that we've been eating so much chaff of this world. I told you that I'm praying and I do believe this, that the Spirit of God can use one sermon to undo hundreds and thousands of hours of carnal discipleship that some of us have been drinking in like, a, like water. We've got to admit, we've been drinking and eating so much chaff of the world that we've lost all sense of godly fear. We need a fresh dose of what the Bible calls piety which was present in the life of Jesus. And we're told in Hebrews 5, God heard his prayer because of his piety. Piety is not a holier than thou, you know, I'm better than everybody else word. It's literally godly fear. We need a renewed sense of awe that gripped the New Testament church like in Acts 5. When Ananias and Sapphira died, Acts 5.11 says, great fear came over the whole church because they knew God was there. Here's another application. If we believe that God was in our midst, no one would murmur and complain against another brother and sister in Christ like Israel did so often in the wilderness. Verse 14 tells us no one by, nobody would criticize. That means tear down another believer. You wouldn't do it. Rather, we would preach the gospel, verses five to 11, to all within earshot, we would try to be a light like Jim prayed for this dark community. We would try to be lights in the middle of a perverse generation. Grumbling and complaining is the fruit, a lack of the fear of God is the root. Do your words flow freely when you complain? Do you find your lungs filled with air when you're ready to tell other believers while other believers, maybe even the one you're talking to, can't get their act together. Is it easy for you to fill up your lungs with God's air and complain against the others he saved? If so, you've lost your fear of God. You have to come back to the cross of Christ. This kind of godly fear was normal. It was typical. It was pervasive in the early church. The early church knew that God dwelt among his people. And the church knew their God. In Acts 9.31, the church went on in the fear of the Lord. You want to hear, of, whether you want to hear it or not, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to hear a very discouraging list. Do you want to know why every Jewish and every Greek, that's non-Jewish, person, is under the bondage of sin. Every fair-skinned European, every dark-skinned African, 
every Asian, every South American. All men, all women, all rich, all poor, all young, all old. Do you want to know why everyone's under the bondage of sin? Romans 3.9. Or that no one is righteous? Romans 3.10. That no one seeks God? Romans 3.11. That everybody turns away from God and does no good? Romans 3.12. Why people's throat is an open grave? Why people's tongues speak deceit? Why the poison of vipers is in people's mouth? Romans 3.13. Why people's lips are full of cursing and bitterness? 3.14. Why they live totally miserable lives and want everybody else to join them? Romans 3.16. And have no peace? Romans 3.17. I'll tell you why. It's in the very next verse. Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be set free from habitual sin? Do you want the tyranny of sin to be broken, for an axe to be laid at the root of things for which Christ died that still have a grip on your life? Do you want to be holy? I mean practically set apart unto God, useful for his service. If you're a Christian, I know you do. 2 Corinthians 7 tells you the remedy Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Same phrase. If you want to return to the living God and renew your covenant of love with him, if you're ready to confess to God, I'm the one with a hard heart. I've been complaining against your people. I don't have any fear of God before my eyes. I need a fresh touch from heaven. I commend 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19 to you. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing how are you going to be holy? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Verse 12, so then... People who I love with God's love, not as in my presence only when you always obeyed, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation, y'all's salvation, with fear and trembling. The pillar commentary says on that phrase, the fear of the Lord is the best way to dispel the attitude of selfish ambition and vain conceit in verse 3 that so quickly ruins social harmony in the church. In order to build up the community, believers need to work together with the attitude of humility that they see in Christ in verses 5 and following, doing everything in the presence of God, verse 12 and 13. Then their work will express their worship of the Lord Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Our Savior, verse 5 to 11, our salvation being worked out, verse 12, and then the supply is in verse 13. Verse 13 is not a contradiction or a correction of verse 12. It is a peeling of the onion so that we can see the deeper cause or ground for how we know we will be able to obey God's command to work out our salvation. Verse 13 answers the how and the why question. How will we have the power to continue to work out our, our, 
work out our salvation in this way, in unity with the people in our local church? Answer, God is working in you to that very end. Why does God work in churches to that end? Answer, for his good pleasure. Again, these pronouns are plural. God is at work in your corporate congregational life. So here's an examination of your faith. I've prayed that God would help me say this sentence so clearly, especially knowing that it's at the tail end. I've prayed that God would give everybody grace to receive it the way it's intended. Here's the sentence. I think every covenant member of this church is truly regenerate. I believe that. I or another elder have sat in every one of your living rooms if you're a member of the church or met somewhere and heard you profess your faith in Christ. I'm now asking you to examine your faith. One of the most confirming tests of true conversion is not what you say at the beginning. It's how we live in the ongoing sense. This same test I'm about to give you dominates the entire book of 1 John. And here's the test. Do you want every professing believer in your local church to make it to the finish line of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a desire and actions that correspond to that desire to that end? The book of Hebrews is about that. The main passage of Hebrews is chapter 12, 1 and 2. We have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's normal Christianity. Don't you love that Paul did not say to the Philippians, Well, they're entertaining selfish preachers down there at Philippi and their unity's all fractured. Chapter 2, 1 and 2, Euodia and Syntyche are fighting again, so therefore, all you real Christians go find another church. You know what he said to them? God's working in you. You know what that says? What that says to us is God doesn't quit on people for whom Christ died. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said to this church, I'm confident that God who began a good work in you is going to finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when God's at work in us, two things happen. You want what pleases him, and you actually do something about it. This is where we close. It's verse 13. The work of God in believers impacts your desires, what you want. And if you don't want this, you've got a rock-hard heart if you're in Christ or you're unregenerate. Sin breaks everybody's wanter. Every lost person wants the wrong things. Salvation fixes it. And when God is at work among believers in congregations, he causes his people to want to please him. So what would it look like? It would look like what happened to Timothy in chapter 2, 19 to 21, where in verse 21 we find that by inference, he seeks after the interest of Christ. It would look like Philippians 3. You would count everything as loss for the privilege, the surpassing value of knowing Christ and having his righteousness. That's what it looks like to want to please God and to want others in your congregation to please God. 
That's evidence that God is at work among us. Do you want that? That's a sincere application. Do you want that? The second is you actually will do something about it. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When God's at work in a church, those who truly belong to him in that church not only desire what pleases God over themselves, but they actually do what pleases him. And all of this is owing entirely to God being good at his job. God takes responsibility to cause churches to want to please him and to actually do something about it, to will and to do for his good pleasure. But what specifically is Paul calling the church at Philippi to do for the pleasure of God? The answer is pursue unity in Christ with your fellow church members proactively. Love one another with agape, with Christ's love. Again, the pillar commentary. In order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to remind ourselves that his interest in this context is social harmony in the community of believers. The entire context for Paul's imperative, work out your salvation, has to do with unity in the church. His previous imperatives clearly call for this. Stand firm in one spirit, 127. Strive together in one accord, 127. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, same love, one spirit, one mind, 2-2. His subsequent imperative also focuses on social harmony. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Verse 14. So clearly the application of doing what pleases God is pursuing unity in Christ together. So the test for your faith a moment ago. The way you prove God is working among you individually and us corporately, the way we prove our union with Christ is by our love for God being manifest in loving the people that he has put in our life to love him with. With the same love that he has shown to us in Christ. To this end, God is at work in Grace Church. With fear and trembling because he is here. Not only is he here, in his person, but he is active in his power. He is working to make us want and to do what pleases him. And by focusing our eyes on the Savior, verses 5 to 11, and living with a conscious awareness of the presence of God among us, fear and trembling, verse 12, and relying completely on his power to enable us to do what he has commanded, verse 13, we will prove ourselves to be Lights in the midst of a perverse generation, verse 16. The final application is this. Let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It requires a corporate return to the presence and power of God. God among you, fear and trembling, verse 12. God at work, verse 13. His presence and his power. Let us work out our salvation. If you've been part of the reason there have been threats to the unity of this church, repent. That's application number two. If Paul were writing this letter to this church today, whose names would he put in it? Paul's not ashamed to name names. Chapter four, verse two, Euodia and Syntyche are not in harmony. And I'm urging them now to meet together at the feet of Christ. 
If Paul were writing this letter to Grace Church, would your name be in it in that sense? If so, vertically you repent and horizontally you restore. You go to your brother or sister and you seek to apply chapter 2 by doing what he says in chapter 4. A Christ-like attitude, self-emptying, chapter 2, verse 5, is how you live in harmony with one another, chapter 4, verse 2. Rejoicing in the Lord, chapter 4, verse 4, is opposed to grumbling and complaining, chapter 2, verse 14. Letting your gentle spirit, chapter 4, verse 5, being known to all men. Is that how people know you? Man, he's got such a gentle spirit. Letting your gentle spirit be known to all men, 4, 5, is opposed to being persistently rude and abrasive. Replacing anxiety, 4, 6, happens with prayer. 4, 6, where the peace of God guards our mind. Are you number three, so work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Honestly evaluate if Paul would put your name in this letter if he were writing to Grace Church and repent if so. Number three, honestly evaluate whether you're earthly or heavenly minded and there's no middle ground. Philippians 3.18, many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, what kind of people, Paul, are enemies of the cross of Christ? Why, who, for whom are you weeping? People whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. If you're going to get another hit of crack cocaine tomorrow from your favorite pundit who provokes your spiritual pride, I'm telling you, I'm telling you with a broken heart that that is earthly mindedness. Are you heavenly minded or earthly minded? Final application, and I saved it for last on purpose, and you patient people, I pray, can hear this. The Lord's Supper. Maybe, maybe, in God's providence and His grace to our local congregation, I don't want to spin it to be something it's not, Maybe God has protected us from traipsing up to his table week after week after week for the last year and presuming on his grace and eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. On April the 25th, God willing, at our members meeting in the evening for our members only, we are preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper for the second time this year and here's the application get right with each other before then seek out people who you have criticized in your private messaging groups and people you've disparaged and people that you've thought ill toward and folks that you don't want to spend any time with pursue them pray for them ask them to forgive you because if you're on your way to make your offering at the altar, first go be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. What might God do in a church that so humbles herself at the feet of Jesus? What kind of unity might we enjoy if we would humble ourselves 
in such a way at the feet of Jesus. That is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead, exalted to the highest place, has a name above every name, and one day very soon, everybody's going to bow in front of him and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I thank you that you have given us the privilege to live this little vapor of a life on this side of eternity with what now is represented as a room full of people who are happy that Jesus is Lord. And my prayer is that you would cause our life together to increasingly reflect that we are people who belong to that Lord. Cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are at work in us to cause us to want and do what pleases you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.